Hello and welcome for the final time in this run to the sitcom club. Joining myself, Mooncat, is Europa Ocho. Hello. So, uh, still open all hours. Since last time, I found out that, well, I found out, it was revealed on an interview on Loose Ends that it was David Jason's idea that Granville should have become Arkwright, essentially. So, this was one of our main criticisms was that Granville wouldn't become Arkwright, but I guess David Jason just wanted to play Arkwright. I guess so, yes. And I never expressed it in this fashion, but I think that's part of the problem, is this is a remake pretending to be a sequel. Yes. Now, I made a suggestion to yourself off-air, and now I'm going to repeat it on-air, because it was something that only occurred to me after we'd spoken about it the other day, during our watching podcast. This whole business about Granville and Mavis... Beginning of episode two, for example, we saw Granville climbing up a ladder, trying to get Mavis's attention, and then being derailed by Mavis's sister in the adjacent flat. I suggested to yourself, instead of Mavis's sister getting in the way of things, why not have it that Mavis wants to be with the old Granville, but she doesn't like this new Granville who's suddenly turned into Arkwright Mark II? Yes, or we have it that Granville is still recognisably Granville. And all of his mad marketing schemes happen because they're mad schemes, not for the marketing. And it's Leroy who's kind of a little bit... He's not avaricious, but he wants to be part of something successful and he doesn't really approve of the more fanciful aspects. Arkwright and the Jamaican ginger cake. Now, Arkwright was making up that wild story about Jamaican ginger. What do you mean wild story? It works. He wanted to sell ginger cake whereas the flip side of that would be or could be granville doing similar things but because he almost believes his own weird little fantasy because he just really wanted to have an odd little vision about jamaican ginger anyway we're not talking about still open all hours today no no we're talking about star wars now, you like your comic books slash sci-fi slash all that. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Have, have, have I just committed a full part there? I'm not really big on sci-fi. Just lumped two things together, have I? Yeah, I read a fair few comics a month, but I'm not really big on sci-fi. I have not seen Guardians of the Galaxy or that one with the big Japanese robot. Actually, I haven't been to the cinema in ages. I heard they have talkies now. <laughs> I have seen Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, I did actually see that over the summer. Well, I didn't, because I'm not really gone on the science fiction. So, Do you know how many times I've seen Star Wars? Um, Twice. Once. <gasps> well, something caught my eye earlier on. And you know, Tex Avery cartoons, somebody doesn't so much do a double take as does a sort of quadruple take, like, <laughs> like that. I saw this advert earlier on. And I'm so glad that they repeated it just 10 minutes later because it then confirmed what I thought I'd seen in the first place. You remember those magazines you used to get back in the day where you would collect each part of it and it would all go into a big ring binder and then you'd have like a complete set and it may be that you're making something and they've got little bits in each week's edition. And then eventually you'd have like a model of the Armada or something like that, right? Is this magazine coming out shortly? called Build the Millennium Falcon. Now, as I understand it, that's something to do with Star Wars. I think it's a big ship or something like that, isn't it? Yes, it can do some famous run in a small number of parsecs. That's the heavily quoted 
line. Oh, that's the gist of a heavily quoted line. Right. This magazine is giving you the chance to build your own Millennium Falcon. Now, I personally, I prefer the chance to build my own Millennium Dustbin, as seen in TV's Get Fresh on a Saturday morning. But that's obviously not particularly popular. So... You get all your bits and pieces, you build this, it's got bits that open up, it's got like a ramp that drops down, all this kind of stuff, and you're thinking, way hey, I like the sound of this, please sign me up. I wish to subscribe. But not so fast. Part one of the magazine is £2.99. They usually have these introductory offers. They surprisingly didn't have buy part one and get part two free, leading to all those hilarious jokes in the newsagents about, can I just get part two, Mr. Newsagent? I saw this small print at the bottom of the screen, and I thought, I can't have really seen what I've just seen. But then when the advert was repeated, it confirmed that it was true. The magazine is normally priced £8.99. And there are 100 editions. For 900 quid, I want this bloody thing not only to be life-size, but I want it to be a fully working Millennium Falcon. 900 bloody pounds for a model? Are you... Taking the piss? I mean, seriously, I mean, I thought we were supposed to be in austerity That's not Britain the at the moment. biggest Star Wars related surprise ever experienced. No, that, that is the fact that I've actually seen Star no, Wars. No, the biggest Star Wars related surprise ever experienced is when I went to see episode one with a friend. Now, what does that mean in old money, episode one? What is, what is that? That was the fourth one they made. Oh, the new one, Jar Jar. The, yes, yeah. Celia Imri was in it. Well, hey. Only for like two seconds. Was <laughs> I mean, I knew Andrew Seacombe was doing one of the voices. and In original flavour Star Wars, Dennis Lawson's in there. Don Henderson. So are we going to lay our New Year surprise? We're going to, when, you, when you say the word of what we're reviewing today, jaws are going to drop. Okay. Now, we deliberately didn't put this in the title of the podcast. so We wanted it to be pure. That's right. I can't really believe that I'm going to say this. Today, we are discussing Miranda. Now, I take it from the silence that you are as surprised at this as I am. I'm just giving everybody a chance to recover. And I imagine some people are already getting their opinions about our opinions in place. I don't doubt some people are going to say, oh, we didn't get it. It's not meant for us. It's meant it's it's girly. Because it is. It's it's kind of girly. Well, do you mean the 25% of listeners who are still listening? Because presumably a hell of a lot of people just hit the stop button right now. But if you are still listening, thank you. And please stick with us. But, okay, I am acutely aware that we do have a tendency in the sitcom club to concentrate on material sort of around about the 1970s, 1980s and thereabouts. And that's my comfort zone. It's the period of time that I probably most enjoy seeing as far as what we've spoken about in previous podcasts. But you can't look at everything through that prism. And sometimes you've just got to do something a little bit different. So this is what we're doing. Despite the fact that, I don't know about you, but I had difficulties sympathizing with the title character. She is someone, okay, how can I put this? She's somebody who throws herself at men. She Oh, yes, she does. Yes. Like in that song. What was it? Hollow Notes? Whoa, hear me out. She throws herself at men. Da, 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 da. No, not George Formby. Miranda has a lot of attractive traits. And good, solid comedic traits as well, not quite knowing how to behave in regular society. Sort of like a fish out of water. <laughs> yes, yes. 
Oh, you were saving that one up. Okay, I wouldn't go as far as to say that she's a man-eater, but certainly she is someone who can wrap men around a little finger. And it's a lot of raw fish. Which I suppose is the end thing. I mean, I'm not really into sushi myself, but... No, raw fish is sashimi. Sushi is vinegared rice. What? Yes, what you tend to get is sushi is wrapped round sashimi or served with sashimi. But sushi is referring to rice. Do you mean I've been committing a series of faux pas every single time I've mentioned sushi in the last 20 or years? Faux pas, like Colts Marshall. Oh, hell. So this was a little out of our comfort zone because generally we deal with things that are three-walled. Yep. On videotape. Mm Mm-hmm. In colour. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't. Took a bit getting used to. There were a lot of nice, familiar comedy faces in there. I felt comfortable. And I liked the pacing. Yeah, no, no time wasted. Straight in there. Yeah, it was. There was no sort of time for any backstory or anything like that. I mean, presumably somebody will remake Miranda in 20 years' time, the same way as we've just had that new Map and Lucia. And they'll probably oh. sort of lay it all on really heavy and where you've got nice little subtleties in Miranda. Now it's going to be, you know, we're going to slap you across the face with it and what have you. But yeah. What is wrong with subtlety? Can I just quickly mention New Map and Lucia? Oh, please do, yeah. Because my wife read the books before she ever saw the TV series. I had to introduce her to the TV series. So she had some very fixed ideas about what really captured the flavour of Benson, EF Benson, not not the butler. (laughs) And now you've got the theme tune stuck in your head. So have I, so have I. Anyway, what really captured the flavour of Benson's novels and what didn't. And fortunately, she liked the 80s Map and Lucia. Well, Series 1, more. Series 2 compresses things a little too much, but I had the feeling that she wasn't going to get to the end of New Map and Lucia. In fact, I had the feeling that she wasn't going to get to the end of Part 1. And I thought... 20, 25 minutes. And she'll say, no, no, can't do this anymore. Terrible. One minute 59. (laughs) Okay, you can turn it off now. (laughs) Seen enough. Getting back on track, I do like a nice bit of subtlety in comedy. And that was what was so appealing about this. Because, I mean, I just mentioned Mrs. Brown's boys. They're just now... I know that some people say that that's polarizing. I've just seen a piece in Independent talking about it being a polarizing comedy and saying how it's actually going to be on until 2020. They've agreed to make Christmas specials for the next five years. I don't really have a strong opinion about Mrs. Brown's Boys. I can take it or leave it. I've seen it before. But yeah, it's very much in your face. Not a lot of subtlety. Whereas it's nice when you get little details, nice when you get little lines and little sort of glances and what have you. And, yeah, there was plenty of that good on here. So shall we start recapping the plot? You'd never seen this before, had you? I, I hadn't n- either. No, I'd never, I'd never seen it. I had plenty of time to see it, of course, because, my God, it's been around long enough, but no time like the present, I suppose. This you read is, about it in books. I suppose this was the best possible time to, to see it. Mainly the so. credits that was given to Don Lop. Okay, so we've got to talk about the plot, do we? No, should, should we just point out that we actually started Miranda from the beginning? We didn't come in late. Yeah, I don't want to be coming halfway through. No. No, no, we start- silly. No, we, we started. Though, though, then again, at the time Miranda first hit the scene, a lot of people would have come in halfway through and then stayed until the spot they walked in on. That's how things worked in those days. Where to begin? 
It's unusual for something so focused on finding a man to start with the man. Yes, that was an interesting plot device. And have him already be married. I suppose we would say happily married, would we say? Well, his wife is the least surprisable woman in all of history. So we will later find out. There's quite a few things. Look, you are well within your rights here to freak out. But she's not doing it. No, nothing gets past her. And she is... I was actually thinking right at the outset that we weren't going to see her again. But then, of course, I realised that she's one of like the main players in the entire thing, so that really wasn't very likely. The husband is Dr. Paul Martin, and his wife is Claire. And he decides to go on what is, interestingly enough, called a bachelor's holiday. Now, he doesn't say confirmed bachelor, because that means a different thing. So he's going to go on a bachelor's holiday, and he's going to do some fishing. So he goes to Cornwall, and there he gets pulled off. Oh, what no? Sake. No, no, what no? He's... Stop you going to those youth clubs. <laughs> he's in the fishing boat. He 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 gets he gets a pool and then he he falls in. The... What what do you think, man? Can we just can we just establish here though? The plot in earnest starts with him being pulled off the fishing boat. That's what two minutes forty. It really is this like minimal setup, and I like it. Yes, I agree. Pow, pow, pow. It reminds me of those Children's Film Foundation films. Yeah, you, know, you just get straight in there. There's no faffing about, no backstory, none of that. I mean, bloody hell, The Dark Knight was on ITV the other night. Bloody three hours that took. Three hours. I mean, what exactly was there for Batman to do for three hours? It was so bloody important. I'm asking you because you must have seen it. I, I have no idea. Is it all psychological? Is that it? It is all psychological, yes, and there's a girl involved, and he doesn't want to lose his bird. It's that whole thing that it's, if I stop being Batman, will you be my girlfriend again? <laughs> She's going, I don't really want to be your girlfriend, whether you're Batman or not. Anyway, okay, so there's your man, and he goes on this bachelor's fishing holiday, and he meets Miranda. You see, I knew what the film was going to be about. I'd seen a picture of the tale made by Dunlop. So I thought that there was it was going to sort of tease us. Going, oh, look, what's, what's happening? And he was going to sort of say, I saw something strange. I can't get it out of my mind. Oh, what's going on? I must go down to the sea again and see if I saw what I thought I saw. No. Three minutes into the movie, pow, mermaid. Right there. This film is about a mermaid. Here she is. Here is your mermaid. Fantastic. He's down there and she says, oh, you're a nice bit of stuff, aren't you? Why don't you stay here? In fact, Effectively, yes. She's very bold. She's Metal Mickey or something. Well, effectively, she says, I'm going to keep... I thought it was going to turn out like misery. She's basically saying to him, I'm going to keep you here. And I know that I'm shooting fish in a battle here. Hey! Oh. But there are a couple of things which are occurring to me at this point. I mean, first of all, she does speak rather good English, doesn't she? She's a Cornish. Okay, she doesn't have a thick accent, but obviously she's middle class. Actually, can I rephrase that? She speaks very well for somebody presumably who hasn't had a lot of conversations. You don't actually have to have conversations. I think if you overhear enough conversations. She's got magazines. Uh, We don't see it, but I'm going to say it's not completely beyond the bounds of possibility that she has a radio. Television has been broadcasting again for two years. Oh, and she's got that, has she? Maybe. Maybe that's it. She's just been listening to Jasmine Bly. Has she got a 
receive her license for this television? Well, I don't think she's that bothered about little legalities. She's a blatant man-stealer. She's, she's not really that bothered about propriety and decorum. Oh, there's a nice man on that boat. I think I'll just pull him under the water, risking drowning him. And uh, that's it. You're my man now. And stay in my cave. There's some magazines for you to read. And maybe if he'd got really bored, she would have pulled out the radio and said, well, it Mars on in a couple of minutes. Presumably a waterproof one that was suitable for use in a shower, for example. But anyway, what I mean, I'm not talking about her fluency in English. What I mean is, okay, say you were somebody who'd taken a vow of silence for like, I don't know, 20 years, and then you finally spoke again. Surely it would take a little while before you were speaking normally. So her first words to himself should have been something like, oh! Like, and, and that sort of But she's been singing, hasn't bit. she? She's been keeping the vocal cords working with the constant singing. And I presume she practices conversations in her cave. Right, next time a nice fella in a fishing boat goes past, I know exactly what I'll say to him. I suppose so, yes. I'll give you that. I was also a little bit disappointed when he banged his head on the cave because he just went, oh, I was hoping he was going to let a, a whole stream of expletives. Just talk about turning the air blue. I mean, what's the... Hadn't actually. You're hoping the cave would wobble. <laughs> well, speaking of which, we have to review Robin's Nest at some point so you can see Tony Britton's creased London skyline. <laughs> In my mind's eye, not only is it creased, it also says Thames Colour Production. <laughs> 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 They're sitting in his flat and it's... it's. What day is it today? Oh, uh, it's Friday. Oh, it's nearly 5.15. Look out the window. This is going to be spectacular. Now, he says, what do you want from me? Doesn't say it quite like that, but it's basically the gist of it. And she says, oh, I want to go to London to meet the Queen. Charming evening, your mom. So, naturally, he agrees because otherwise he's going to be a fish prisoner for the rest of his life. I suppose having been through the Second World War and the reintroduction of television, people back then were very difficult to surprise, weren't they? Yeah, I suppose so. He does not try and run in five different directions at once and scream. He just gets a bit upset at the prospect of being kidnapped and held in a cave for the rest of his natural. She is slightly unsettling, Miranda, isn't she? I mean... I do suspect that I mean, she never actually becomes like full-on dangerous, but... This film was weird. Oh, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but there's just certain things in this film that happened because it's a British film. Well, it could have happened in many other countries of the world. But generally, when you're talking about English-speaking cinema, and like us, you're from the UK, your choices are generally America or Britain. And initially, when you put an old British film and an old American film next to each other, you could be forgiven for thinking they're essentially the same but with different accents. But just occasionally something will happen in the British one and it's just, oh, here's code, we don't have that here. That sounded a bit passag, didn't it? Um, <laughs> there's just occasionally it's, it's like, oh, it never occurred to us you couldn't do this. And Miranda does things in this that I don't think she would have done if this had been an American film with Veronica Lake or whatever. I mean, the BBFC existed, it wasn't a free-for-all, but eh, the line's just in a different place sometimes in British films. Have we actually mentioned names yet? 
We mentioned Googie Whittlers is Mrs. Martin. Griffith Jones is Dr. Paul Martin. And Glynis Johns is Miranda. With her breathy Kensington darling tones. <laughs> and... The then, hell was that? I, don't, I, I, I thought that I could Was that possibly... that sped up clip of Bruce Forsyth he sent me on YouTube? Just to clarify about that, it wasn't like some 15 second thing where somebody's just pissed about it for a laugh. Somebody has uploaded an entire edition of Player Cards Right from 1981 and however they've done it, I don't have managed to balls it up, but they've managed to upload it to YouTube going at something like 115% of its normal <laughs> That's speed. the thing, it's not even double speed, is it? It's just up a little. But somebody also uploaded a two Ronnies trailer from Christmas 1983 that was running at half speed. <laughs> and I was curious. I downloaded the clip from YouTube using means. I thought, I wonder, I just wonder... So I ran the audio through the very same program by which you're hearing me now. And I took the pitch back up to normal, but left the speed alone. And it's been years since I did that. I forgot the wonderful thing is, if you slow somebody's speech down, but leave the pitch alone, it often makes them sound drunk. <laughs> it's the same this Christmas with the two bodies. <laughs> Marvellous. Anyway... <laughs> Miranda. He says, all right, then I'll take you back home with me and comes up with this. Okay, he gets a bit too enthusiastic too quick. He does a bit, yes. There comes a point at which he's not pleading for his life saying, don't take me back to your Cornish cave. He's just kind of like, oh, I'll take you wherever you like and I'll buy you all new clothes. Just making a note of that to add to the Urban Dictionary website, Cornish cave. Okay. Okay, using Miranda as a launching point then. Is that the dwelling of a of a single woman who'll do anything to get a man? A Cornish cave. It is now. Yeah, there we go. I think it should only be used by single women themselves as a sort of self-deprecating thing. Back to the Cornish cave, I suppose. Right, I'm quite serious about this. Shall we see if we can actually... I don't think we're going to be able to get into the OED, but shall we see if we can actually get the expression Cornish Cave being used for precisely that meaning. Or initially, initially on Twitter, dear listeners, if you could just send out a tweet at some point in the next week, you don't have to mention Sitcom Club or anything like that, just mention the expression Cornish Cave, and we've just heard the definition of what it means, and then if you could just put that out into the ether for us, then from that point onwards, it's nothing to do with us. Then it's got a life of its own, and if it becomes modern day parlance, then great, but you know, we may have started it, but we can control no, it. No, no, it will be used to hurt people. You know what the internet's like. Oh, leave it, leave oh. it well alone. Oh, Dr. Martin's a bit of a cheeky fella, isn't he? Can we mention again that he's married? They cook up a plan together so that Dr. Martin can basically have... His end away. His manic fishy dream girl. Okay, I was... would Paul Bowen have been better suited to being with a manic pixie fish girl? Not Miranda. No, I think she would have broken his heart way worse than any cutting remark from Brenda. But she's not as much of a sayer as Brenda is. Although she is a bit of a sayer. She is a bit. I did get some unexpected giggles on occasion during this film. For example, after she's arrived at the house and your man, Dr. Martin, has arranged to get some suitable eateries 
for it. And what would you call a chap? He's not. Is he a butler as such, or he's not running an entire household? So I would just call him a manservant. He seems to have more duties than simply a valet. But the manservant and the maid are an item, which we'll come back to later on. But the maid says to him, "What's that you got there?" And he says, "Bottle of oysters." And I was just screaming out for somebody to say, "Don't you use language like that, and me, son?" <laughs> but no, it was actually literally a barrel of oysters. And then when Dr. Martin comes in and Claire says to him, oh, did you enjoy your fishing? And he says, oh, yeah, very much so. And she says, did you get any big ones? <laughs> and I'm already at this point, I'm starting to think of potential similarities with Carry On films. Because later on, we, of course, have Brian Olton turn up. And just the other night, he was showing Charles Hotry how to stick the pole up in... Carry on camping. Well, Miranda does have Morris Denham as a cockle vendor. <laughs> so hang on a minute. Right, Miranda steals Dr. Martin from his fishing boat, throws herself at him. Then she wants to see Buckingham Palace, so Charlie, the general servant and chauffeur, drives her past a back projection plate <laughs> with film of Buckingham Palace on it, and she starts coming heavily onto him. Now, this is a point at which I said, yes, this is now turning into Carry On Emmanuel, because there is exactly that scene in Carry On Emmanuel. Only the chauffeur is played by Kenneth Connor, who is much more coarse. I think it's more believable that a young woman would throw herself at David Tomlinson rather than Kenneth Connor. Now, people may not be familiar with the people we're talking about here. I presume that most people have seen Googie Willers and things and what have you, but... Mooncat, you are the only person left on Earth who's never seen Mary Poppins. Everybody else has seen Mary Poppins, so everybody's seen Glynis Johns and everybody's seen David Tomlinson. They are the two most famous people in this thing. Mary Poppins is one of those films that is just always on, and so I think I'll get round to it at some point. But I just haven't seen it yet. So which one's he then in Mary Poppins? He's Mr. Banks. Is he Dick Van Dyke? You know, people talk about Dick Van Dyke's accent in America. I never, I never mentioned Dick Van Dyke's accent. He does one perfectly good English accent. Of the two he does in that film, one of them's fine. And who's Glynis Johnson? Mrs. Banks. See, it doesn't mean anything to me. Just from the character names, but if I've never seen the film, then... It doesn't matter what I say, because you've never seen the film. This is not for your benefit. This is for the benefit of all the listeners who have seen Mary Poppins. Right. Get in your mind's eye. Mr. Banks, imagine him younger with no moustache. That is David Tomlinson. He's in this film as the chauffeur. Glynis Johns, Mrs. Banks, you know her. Votes for women. Yes, right. Well, she's in this. She has long blonde hair. She's incredibly flirtatious. And she is half fish. There was another bit in the film where I don't know if this is where I thought it was going or where I was hoping it was going to go. Well, I do. I know the answer, but I'll let you choose for yourself. Dr. Martin says to Claire, uh, she'll need lots of attention. And Claire says, yeah, I'll bet she will, you dirty sod. And then she says, okay, she's going to need to get a nurse. And she means of the female type, because she doesn't trust him, because he's a randy little bleeder. So he gets on the phone to Margaret Rutherford. And... He's saying, oh, yes, we need a nurse around here. Now, I was so hoping that there wasn't going to be anybody else at the end of the phone. I was hoping he just picked up the receiver and says, yes, uh, we'd like a nurse, please. Uh, you stay here for four weeks. That's right. And then the next time we see Griffith Jones, he's all done up like Mrs. Doubtfire. And that's <laughs> actually going to be the film. It's going to be him pretending to be the nurse. And Claire, who apparently isn't 
bemused or baffled by anything just takes us at face value and says, oh, oh good evening, Mrs. Nurse. Yeah, the, the fish is over there. And then goes and has his watery adventures until at the last minute his nurse hat falls off. Is that what they're called? Nurse hats? What was it that Nettis Hughes wore in the district nurse? She had a little hat probably to the side or something like that. It falls off. And she says, oh my god Paul, it's you! you Actually, prick. no, hang on a minute. Did you watch The Dark Knight? No. Right. Spoilers. Not really a plot point spoiler. I'll try and not be too spoilerific. There is a part in The Dark Knight where the Joker, who as we know has a white face and he's put all this black stuff around his eyes dresses up as a nurse and he goes to see another character see being very good about the spoilers who has reason to be quite angry at the joker and the joker is wearing this little surgical mask you know that just covers his mouth and he comes into this character and then he takes off the surgical mask and suddenly the character's like oh it's you oh yeah baden right you didn't notice that the person with the one White face and the black makeup around the eyes and the green hair was the Joker until they took off the little tiny surgical mask. <laughs> Glad you aren't on the Krypton Factor. <laughs> Gordon would have sent you home after the observation <laughs> I think I should watch this so, film now. So Dr. Martin tells his wife, oh, I'm just looking after somebody, she can't walk, she's an old woman. And of course he brings Miranda home. And really, Mrs. Martin is well within her rights throughout this movie to give him a kick in the stones. For his trouble. That he will never forget. And of course that is how the film ends. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. But she, no, she, she sort of takes that in her stride. There's the point, I mean, Miranda's just like... What does, what's the first thing she says to Mrs. Mart? Does it like... Um, oh, yes. She he, she says to her, oh, you're actually very pretty because he said you were just plain looking. It wasn't plain looking, but it was definitely damning with faint praise. Yikes. And I'm not sure Miranda was actually meaning that as a put down. Like, I'm not sure war was being declared over this man. Miranda's just, okay, She she speaks with perfect marked RP, but obviously she doesn't quite know how the nicer parts of London society operate. I have a question, and I want you to take this question seriously. It's not a funny observation you would get on a panel show, okay? How does Miranda read Vogue underwater? Is that like an inflatable... She doesn't read it underwater. It was in her cave. Now, it obviously got damp, but she's grabbed the magazine and then dried it out and then read it in her cave in one of the non-watery parts. It might have been affected by damp, but she's dried the magazine out first until it's readable. So this isn't like some inflatable copy of Vogue? No, you saw him looking through it. And that's how she knows about... She wants to see the Queen and go to the opera and listen to the Queen album A Night at the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> Would it not have been lovely if all of her knowledge about supposed polite society came from the Marx Brothers? It practically does, to be honest. Well, I guess the, so. The way she behaves, I'm sure surrealists were a big fan of this film, this whole idea that you just, you know, disregard social norms. So, any anytime she's introduced to, well, not quite any time she's introduced to a man, but it's not unusual for her to be introduced to a man who's go, oh, you're lovely, aren't you? She does like the men, yes. I mean, I'm going to say that for a sea creature, she actually adjusts remarkably well to land. 
Well, she has to sleep in the bath overnight, doesn't she? She does. Is that actually the norm for mermaids? I mean, do they only need water for a certain number of hours per day or something? It's like vampires. It's whatever the screenwriter feels like being bound by at the time. Because I have a reason why I haven't seen Splash. You know, in the book of Dracula, Dracula walks, walks around in the day with no problems. I thought you were going to say he walks around with no clothes on. For this is what? the computer. Why in the would book. he do that? I don't know. I thought that's what you were going to say, and it was like they could do that in the book. That's fine. But he's from Hungary. He moves to Whitby. Now Whitby's very nice in the summer, but even then, the you know sea breezes drop temperatures. He's Dracula. He could do whatever he wants. So essentially, we've got this love rectangle. <laughs> <laughs> right, Miranda. Here's Doctor Martin. Oh, you're lovely, aren't you? Here's Charles the chauffeur. Mm, yeah. Here's Nigel, their artist friend who isn't married but has a girlfriend. Oh. oh, Miranda agreed to be painted by him. And I thought Miranda with her liberated ways and Nigel with his artistic temperament was going to sort of, can I paint you in a state of nature and would find out about her lack of humanity. Well, no, he just, oh, right, you're a mermaid. That will push the plot somewhere. But they didn't go for that. Does Nigel ever find out she's a mermaid? What? <laughs> I just had a completely different idea in my head when you said he finds out about her lack of humanity. He they... finds out she's a huge manatee. No, when they have like their embrace and then it fades to black and you were saying, hey, look, yes. it fades to black. It's like, wait, I thought you that were was, saying... That was way too suggestive, yes. But I, was, I thought you were suggesting that she's into some really, you know, Kinky shit. It's like, oh god, humanity. Oh, and Nigel's just like, he's just walking around in the days for days to come. Just he's like, his shirt's hanging out of his trousers and his zips wide open as well. And he's, he's just, he can't get the image out of his mind. Oh my god, the things that she knows. Things she's, she's learned under the water. Where was the humanity? You know, watched a lot of 1940s movies before. <laughs> now, speaking of Nigel, you know what I think about him? The first second of Cloud Ties on him. And Nigel is played by John McCallum. And I worked out his nationality by the shape of his head. Thought so looks a bit beefy for an English actor of the 19th. Hang on a minute. He's Australian. Ah. Nigel turns up. As you say. Artist. Straight away I'm thinking, yeah, spy. Yep. Categorically. No, no question about it. He's Cambridge graduate and he's Edmund KGB. I reckon he was one of the famous ones, you know, Wilson Keppel or Betty or whoever. But he's so obvious. And when he said about, oh, we're going to go to my studio, I thought, yeah, that's where he's got the equipment. That's where he's got all the radio equipment. And he's got all the diagrams, you know, and the map with the lights on it that, like, you see in Doctor Strangelove. And he's going to have his books with translations and all sorts. And No, I think, judging by the kind of film it was, he was going to go back and go, oh, Miranda, you're so lovely. Well, we don't know what um, happened when the lights. There was going out. to be a fade out. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, yeah, I, I misinterpreted. Well, it's not that I misinterpreted the fade out. I was fairly certain that the thing indicated by a fade out was not going to happen. Not this kind of film. It would take the plot in a very strange direction. Not impossible because it's a fade out in a 1940s film. Generally, it's a way of discreetly hinting at stuff. But I thought, no, I sort of thought that that's what was going to happen and then the next scene she goes out with Charles in charge boy yeah David Tomlinson this, apparently this most... is where I start this movie was weird but I thought they were 
reach. You know what? We should have had well. Birdie along to help us to give us the feminine perspective. Yes, but it looks as if they were going to get down to it with their picnic. I can just imagine the women of 1948 watching this film, outraged by Miranda's behaviour, and possibly dragging out their gormless husbands. You're not watching this. There's got to be at least one couple who saw this film and the husband had previously said, oh, you know that I'm going away on that fishing trip next weekend. And after seeing this, it was like, oh my God, all, all hell was going to break loose at home. You know, trouble in mind. Why do you think he wanted the yacht? Ah, basically, if this had been Carry On Manuel, or more likely Adventures of a Saucy Mermaid, then if it had been Adventures of a Saucy Mermaid with Barry Evans as Dr. Martin, then I don't know that there would have been as much subtlety and as much care taken over the problems that a mermaid faces when on land. And I think it would have been more just unadulterated filth. And probably not a great deal of thought given as to does a mermaid return to the sea or whatever it may be. You're making it sound like, well, had they made an adventures film around a mermaid, then it would have turned into unsubtle filth. Now, had they made an adventures film about a coronation chicken sandwich, <laughs> it would have turned into unsubtle filth. I'm sort of picturing like a little five-minute filler on BBC One around about, say, 1983. We have some time in hand today, uh, early conclusion to the cricket. So here's a coronation chicken sandwich being prepared, and it just shows you the whole business. With Spanish flea playing. I imagine it would be made by Johnny Craddock. If you wish. Yeah, I did it. I imagined it being made by Johnny Craddock. <laughs> and how but, was it? <laughs> yes. It'll gleam in his eye because it wasn't going to be covered with blue food dye. He was doing it exactly the way he wanted. It's a bit like that TV show with um, Cleo Lynn and John Dankworth, where people are coming over to dinner and Cleo's on the phone and she says... Well, the clip we've seen is John Thorne, Sheila Hancock, and Cleo turns. She's singing the theme tune, and the concept is in the song. I think she turns to John, and he, she goes, John and Sheila are coming to dinner. And John sort of nods, and I would have liked it if he just rolled his eyes. <laughs> <sighs> I had left aside this night to work on my model of HMS Ark Royal, and I've got all the paint and the glue set up upstairs. And now you're expecting me to be pleased by this. I mean, I like John and Sheila. They're nice people. But I was looking forward to working on that ship. He was going to build a Millennium Falcon. He doesn't do that, though. He just sort of nods like, that'll be nice. Because, admittedly, it would have really been a way of spiking the guns of your own television format if you'd shown one of the participants disapproving of it in the opening titles. I'd forget I said anything. <laughs> <laughs> you have just reminded me of that lovely little outtake from Emmerdale which you've probably seen, because it's been on um, All Right in the Night a few times. Now, I can't quite remember the preceding line is, so I'll just Somebody's make... Somebody's coming home. It, yeah, it's something like, Muller's Muller, coming home, and the three in the background just go, oh, fucking hell! Where have we got to? We've established that Nigel has needs. I think we've set up enough. I don't want to go right to the end of the film and give away the last shot of the film, which raises some interesting questions. I'd like to think that everybody's going to be able to enjoy Miranda for themselves. So I think we should just start speculating on... Right, why is Mrs. Martin so unflappable? 
what has Dr. Martin done in the past that bringing home a mermaid who is quite clearly after her man doesn't make her go right out? There's your suitcase. She just arcs her eyebrows and makes a few little catty remarks. Is he just a serial fish-based defender? Oh, Troy McClaw. Yeah. You know how you hear about those politicians, for example? I'm thinking of, like, Alan Clark, for example, who had supposedly had so many, you know, extramaritals that eventually their wife just sort of accepts it. I mean, not so much is pleased about it, but it's just like, we've been through this so many times that I know he's not actually going to go anywhere. Well, she's the one, isn't she, who says bachelor holiday. And we all know what I mean by that. But hasn't he crossed a line by bringing his work home with him? He didn't really have a lot of choice, did he? Because he wasn't going to get out of the Garden of Eden otherwise. He gets enthusiastic so quickly, though. He buys her all these clothes. He's like, oh, I can put you in a wheelchair and we can explain away that way. And he's a doctor. He could say, look, if you just want to go around London and see the Queen and go to the opera, which we haven't mentioned is a thing that turns up a couple of times. He can just say, look, I'm a doctor and I can, I can send you to a particular, you know, I can send you to the Priory of... It's 19, well, of course, it's 1948. It's the year before the NHS. Now, there was a certain amount of state subsidy of healthcare thanks to Lloyd George's budget of whatever year. Is he saying all of this to her? No, but you would be educational, wouldn't it? But then again, he's not going to talk. He's, when did the act establishing the NHS pass? It was, it it was, was in 1940. It was 1949, wasn't it? So the act was... Pe- right, so 49 is... So maybe... What what we need is for this film to be made by the Ministry of Information. I don't know what kind of disgusting person this makes me. Why, or why, has the Doc brought Miranda home? He's brought her all the way back from Cornwall, okay? He's a doctor who can afford a manservant and a maid, so, you know, he's obviously got a couple of quid. He's probably one of those fellas, you know those men who have, like, rolls of banknotes in their pocket. I always found them rather untrustworthy. He's probably one of them. I'm just thinking of Charles Endel there. He brings back Miranda. I'm thinking about Charles Endel most of the time, though. (laughs) If you're a female woman of the opposite sex (laughs) and you have seen Miranda or you have been inspired, if you're affected by the issues raised by this, then please contact P.T. Barnum and tell him where you saw the mermaid and he'll put it in his museum. I am a little bit concerned that I've damaged I would damaged like to know, because my... my wife watched the film with me. Now, I don't like putting her on the spot. She's Mike shy. Did you really hate Miranda in this film? I didn't like her. Yeah, so my wife didn't like her. We'd like to hear from other women as well. Did you get the red mist at the way this woman was behaving towards married men? No, I was, I was asking the general listenership there. <laughs> no, no, but that, that's an interesting point. Yeah, more red mist towards the married men and the way they responded. Okay. Well, yes, I mean, admittedly, speaking as a couple of guys, <laughs> you and I were not going, uh, fill your boots, Dr. Martin, way. <laughs> mind, mind you. We, okay. we did, you, you didn't like Nigel. But, well, no, you thought he was a spy. So, you know, infidelity is one thing, but espionage is apparently worse. What about that Charles then, eh? He turns up with a proposal of marriage from Miranda, and when he gets knocked back, straight away he's like back to the maid and he's saying, oh no, wasn't he me? Uh, uh, it was a mistake well, this is because you haven't else. seen Mary Poppins, but believe me, 
you can't stay mad at David Tomlinson. He has to say all those lines making fun of his ears. Right, have you seen Man About the House, the film? Yes, we, we watched it when we went to the movies. So we did. So, okay, Patrick Newell as the MP and Amy McDonald is his, what you would call in 1974, his bit on the side in one of the houses that's... There is a faint hint of Amy McDonald, isn't there, in... That's what I'm thinking. That is where this could have gone if Dr. Martin... Except the stuff about the gym slip. But yes, okay, but different time and all that. But, okay, so Dr. Martin gets Miranda, one of those nice little terraced houses, and everything's fine. And he never mentions anything about his fishing trip to Claire. And people who've seen Gavin and Stacey (laughs) will now appreciate the use of the term fishing trip because it has connotations. But he just continues to have a dalliance with her every single day in the very upmarket house that he's just bought her along with all those expensive clothes that were advertised in Vogue. And everything's absolutely fine. There you go. There, there's the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's ceased to be a charming comedy of the 1940s. And I think if there was any sense, they push it as it is, but I think if there was any sense that the makers of this film were hoping that the people would be amused by the idea of a kept woman, I'm not sure it would have got past the BBFC. Okay, shall I... And as much as I talked about the lack of the Hayes Code, that being said, no, I I think the the whole idea of, yes, this successful doctor is deceiving his wife (laughs) and is, let's face it, exploiting a young woman for his own gratification, get ready to laugh, that's not happening. And the fact that that came from your mind, have you no shame? At long last, have you no shame? <laughs> I want to make it perfectly clear that I was simply suggesting an alternative plot for the film. I was not explaining what I would do if I was suddenly Dr. Martin. If I was Dr. Martin, then I would have gone to Cornwall and done some nice fishing and come back. It was not made in Sweden in 1969, sir. Haddock. And said, oh, look, I've got some lovely... They do like fish in Sweden, though, don't they? I know you don't want to reveal the end of the film, but can I reveal what I thought the end of the film was going to be? And I'm not taking the piss. This yeah, time that's now. fine. That's the, fine. The, this really is what I thought it was going to be. There's a bit where I didn't quite understand what this line was about. She says, oh, I would like to so go and see the opera. And he says, oh, but that means I'll have to change again. But he's already done up in, like, his penguin suit. So what? I mean, how many bloody suits do you need to go to the opera? And I thought he was going to the opera anyway. Was, so Was he, he go- wearing... Black tie? Yeah. There you go. I had to wear white tie to the opera. Oh, Bo. Now, they go to the opera, and she says, oh, would you get me a glass of water? And he has that weird bit where he sort of turns and looks at her and then smiles awkwardly and then leaves. But then she starts her singing, because she sings very well. Sirens and mermaids are two separate things, aren't they? But I think they kind of mesh them together for this. Well... She attracts everyone's attention in the theatre, including the orchestra, because as soon as they hear her pipe up, they start playing and what have you, because they think it's Mrs. Woman, the opera singer. And she's backstage and saying, no, no, not me. I haven't started. And the audience are all going, oh, look, look, it's that young lady up there. And then 
Doc comes back in and thinks, oh, Bo, she's making an exhibition of herself and then has to bring her out quickly. And she says, at least I can now say that I've sung in Covent Garden. What I thought was going to happen was she's been dropping all these hints about how she's going to have to go away, she's going to have to return to the sea and what have you. And I thought that right before she does, there's going to be a knock on the door and some empresario turns up and says, are you the young lady who was singing at the opera last night? Yeah, immediately they say, oh, you must come and join the operatic company. And she becomes the star of the company and she sings at Covent Garden every night. And there you are. And she's a mermaid and everybody knows she's a mermaid now, but it's fine. So that's how I thought it was going to end. We're not going to give away that ending, but if you do want to watch the film, it does raise a big question, beginning with who... Well, I don't regret this experience of watching Miranda. No, I think it was something that had to be done. I would like to have watched Derek, but I don't speak German. I would like to have watched Cheers, but I don't have the Galton Simpson Playhouse DVD to hand. What are we talking about next time on the Sitcom Club? I have no idea. Well, I have half an idea. It could be that we come back with watching, depending how long we're staying away. We could come back having watched all 58 series of watching. Or we could come back with some famous heavy hitter. We like to space those out to such an extent that I'm not sure we actually did any <laughs> big heavy heavy hitter. We did, we did only a big horses, heavy hitter we? in our world is something like the Gaffer series three. Let's be honest. Well, there's a reason. There's nothing left to say about Faulty Towers. There's nothing really left to say about Dad's Army. There's a lot left to be said about Alpha Lester. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of my idea the other day about how they should bring back Faulty Towers with Reese Shearsmith as Basil Faulty? What, why did you suggest that? I don't know. I just thought it's something that's bound to happen eventually. Eventually, everything will be remade. So, the sitcom club will return. I think we're going to continue doing Jaffa Kicks for Proust because that's essentially, by the way, we just wasted your time. Watching a British film from 1948 is exactly the kind of thing I'd like to do. Maybe with fewer self-indulgent tangents. No, I think we should uh, at some point watch a dead serious British film of a similar era with that. Right, curtain open, film starts. Pow! B-movie piercing that we like so much. Maybe we could watch Marilyn, which does have Leslie Dwyer in it. And I thought Leslie Dwyer should have been the cockle vendor instead of Morris Denham. Not to take anything away from Morris Denham's career as an actor. I just think usually in a movie like this, somebody like that, it's, it's generally more a Leslie Dwyer type. Shall I say something slightly embarrassing at this point? This is advert on television just now. And I think it may be for Skype or maybe Microsoft or something like that is some technology thing. But it involves this old fella sitting in front of a laptop and he's never used one before. He gets to talk to his family who are someone else using Skype and he's really pleased about it. The first time I saw that advert the other night, I thought, hey, that's Leslie Dwyer. What the hell am I thinking about? How the hell could it be Leslie Dwyer on Skype? I think that probably proves that we're Correct, take a little break from the sitcom club. And well, without breaking a sweat, I could probably find three British B-movies that have Frank Thornton in there somewhere. Because it did seem like I could imagine there might have been a British cinematograph act, brackets, 1950, which stipulated that any film made within the boundaries of Great Britain had to have Frank Thornton in it somewhere, because he got around. Thank you very much indeed for listening to the sitcom club over these past few weeks. Hope you've all had a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and enjoy the bitterly cold months ahead. 
Uh, we will be back in the spring. Let me say a big thank you to yourself, Ocho, to Boggenstrophia, to DCT, to G, to Birdie, and to Squiddy for all the help with the Second Club in the past few weeks and months. In the meantime, keep an eye out on our Twitter feed because we'll have information on there about Jaffa Cakes Proust when that comes along. And in the meantime, happy sitcom viewing. Do you know this one, Ocho? There's a sitcom that's just finished, like just like days ago. And I think it's been quite popular over the past few years. It's about this woman who runs a joke shop or something like that. Maybe we should review that sometime. In the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening to The Sitcom Club. <laughs>